Amen. You may be seated. Um, I was uh, tasked with the opportunity to introduce the speaker, but Pastor Phil's here, and he's been knowing this man a lot longer than I have been, and so I thought it would be great if he's already used up his five minutes multiple times today, but um, we're going to let him do that and let him rest tonight, right? You'll rest when you sleep. You won't talk while you're sleeping, right? Here we go. Here we go. I met John Fernandez October 4, 1971, uh, out in Franklin Canyon, where Annie Fernandez raised nine children. Her firstborn was Susie, and they had another daughter named Mary, and they survived seven brothers. And uh, that Monday night, Annie got me a cup of coffee while I listened to Matt teach the Sermon on the Mount uh, to a group of kids. And out of that, uh, Fernandes family, Annie and her children, eventually all came down to the Holy Ghost Hall. And John was one of the, he was 18 at that time. And uh, he still looks 18. He's kept his youth. You know, Pam has been good for him. And then Pam, uh, was it long after that she was at the hall? What year did you come, Pam? Same thing. And uh, we've watched him. He's been a pastor in Napa for over 20 years now and uh, has pastored on the East Coast. He's been various places, got his doctorate from Masters, and uh, has been a wonderful student of the Word. Just a beloved, beloved brother. I can't tell you how dear uh, he is to us and uh, uh, a marvelous preacher. If I say any more, I might lie. So, John, you better come. We're glad to ha- have you. John Fernandez. I'm going to help you down. I want to say, Phil, I learned three things from Phil how to preach, how to pray, and how to sing. Uh, the first, and they stick with me my entire life. Um, Valley Bible Church has always been dear to Pam and I, and we were actually at Valley Bible's second service. Phil came up to my mom's house, the ranch, told us about it. Pam and I came the next Sunday. Steve was stubborn. He wanted to wait a few weeks, uh, but we came right away, and this is the church that God used to establish me and then sent me out to be a church planner 1982, I planted a church in Pleasanton. From there, I pastored in the East Coast. And I've been a pastor at Grace Church in Napa Valley for almost 28 years. So um, I am, this is like a joy of joys just to be with you all and see you. Um, I'm getting feedback on my mic. I hope you guys, am I doing anything wrong on this? Can you guys hear feedback? Okay. Well, I'll let them worry about it. I'll just preach. I want to just pray because... We need to pray. Father, I thank you for glorifying yourself, exalting your son, saving many, encouraging me and Pam all through the ministry of Valley Bible. Thank you for this church. We pray that your spirit would encourage and renew and strengthen them for the next 50 years or until you come. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen. Good to see you, Dave. 
It really is, Fran. It's good to see you. Good to see you. And it's a blessing to be here. Carolyn, it's amazing. It's evidence that you actually know Christ, is that you've been with Phil that many years. It is amazing. I've been with Pam almost 50, but you're, you're beyond us. So uh, I want to talk out of Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. If you'll turn there, Philippians 1, 27. Standing firm for the gospel is what Valley Bible Church has done and must continue to do or else you become irrelevant no matter how successful or many people you have here. In God's eyes, you become an irrelevant church unless you stand firm in what God says to stand firm in, which is the gospel. Anybody know what the gospel is? The gospel is that wonderful message embodied with truth that Jesus Christ is God. Eternally the Son. He came to earth came into the womb of a woman named Mary, virgin, joined himself to the miraculously conceived embryo so that now the eternal God has fingers and toes and a human nature and can feel nerve endings and feel human emotions. He became like us without stopping being what he was. And so that he would live a perfect life and live the perfect righteousness that you and I haven't. And then he would die a substitutionary death, taking your place on the cross. Bearing all of your sin, the sinless one. And then he, as he said he would, and as the Old Testament predicted, he would rise out of the tomb and conquer death and now offer himself. The good news is, there's good news for this world. Anybody, no matter how bad you are, can be forgiven and freed from the power and penalty of sin forever and know the living God. That's the gospel. I thank God that God in his providence has instilled at Valley Bible Church in hundreds of you this conviction. Don't lose it. It's not normal today to preach the gospel. It's the abnormal. Now that with the BLM movement, the tendency is to preach a social gospel. To preach a gospel that's more in tune with chasing social activities and social behavior and social inequalities than it is the gospel. Are those inequalities need to be addressed? Absolutely. But they're peripheral, not central. They happen as a byproduct of when people come to Christ. Racism flees. Social injustice flees. So if you stop preaching the gospel, you leave the world bankrupt of any power to actually change itself. It's the human heart that causes racism, not laws. So all this stuff to say, I'm thankful that God raises up churches that cling to that. You have that here. You should thank the Lord for that. It's not common. Philippian church is a lot like Valley. The church at Philippi was started basically with with one woman. The Apostle Paul did not have what church growth movements say you must have to start a church today. Church growth online... Startachurch.com from $99 can tell you how to start a church. Get the name, establish board members, skill, start a skillful training process, finalize a board, draft and finite your articles of incorporation, create ministry corporate records, bylaws, social media marketing, purchase website domain, establish website, organizational meetings, select accounting methods, establish financial policies, purchase offering envelopes, get online giving going, develop fundraising spreadsheets, create an atmosphere of generosity, secure bulk mailing, establish social media presence and marketing, developing a launch budget, 
purchase a mailing list, design first service mailers, develop marketing package, start a for-profit ARM, purchase mailing lists, develop a marketing package, advertise, prepare first online service. Valley did none of that. Not one of those things did Valley do. Not one. You shouldn't be here. There's no human reason why this church exists. You have an oaky preacher who's dressed like, he looks like Buddy Holly. We're hippies. I'm 18. My brothers are mature. They're 20 and 22. And we're the elders of a church in my mom's house with 50 kids gathering to hear the gospel. And we're dressed like hippies. Long hair, unshaven, tattered clothes. And in walks a guy in a shark skin suit with horn ring glasses. We go, we just stared at him. He doesn't connect with us. There's no demographic uh, connectivity. He's not connecting with our demographic at all. But he preached Christ. Christ connects through all the demographics. Don't forget that. Don't get so fancy in your marketing and all your attempts to be uh, tech-wise that you forget ultimately it's you and somebody else and telling them the good news that makes the difference. Valley started a lot like the Philippian church, one woman in a prayer meeting. It grew unexplainedly and it experienced, as it grew, pain. And the book of Philippians is written by Paul, their founding pastor, as it were, exhorting them on how to deal with the pain. They were dealing with pain of suffering in a culture that was beginning to push back on them, persecute them, and they were dealing with the pain internally of disunity that was caused just from being human. People not getting their way, Yodia and Syntyche were having quarrels in the church, all kinds of disunity was happening in this church. They loved God, they loved the gospel, and yet Jesus Christ through Paul says, listen, my dear established church, listen to what I want to tell you about being able to continue to be useful for me. And so in this passage, he's going to tell them in a nutshell what it is in verse 27. Summarizes it, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word conduct yourselves literally is the word polituo, which is where we get politics from. It literally means conduct yourself as a citizen. Politics. View yourself as a citizen of another realm, heaven, and conduct yourself in a manner worthy of that realm, in spreading the gospel. It's present tense. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. He goes, my children, I love you. I know you're surrounded by all this stuff in culture. I know you're surrounded by all the stuff that being human entails in terms of relational issues. I know that. So I'm going to focus you laser-like on what will carry you through the next 50 years of your life despite all the stuff that hits you. I want you to what? Determine to walk as a citizen in heaven worthy of the gospel. Walk worthy as citizens of the gospel. Fly the flag of Christ over your life. Whose allegiance are you really displaying by your life? Who would they know you most as? With me, sometimes it'd be a Giants fan. Man, that guy's why? Because I'm going nuts when they're winning. If you're satanic, you'd be a Raiders fan. They do have skull and crossbones. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's satanic, so. They even look evil. Who, you, you fly a flag over your life 
your kids see it, your friends see it, what your first allegiance is, is, is a banner over you. And that banner, he says, for the church is not Valley Bible. Your banner isn't Valley Bible. Your banner isn't your particular likes or dislikes. Your banner is the gospel of Christ. That's what your banner is. Now, the fact that he has to command them to do that indicates what? You lose the right banner. Christians who love Jesus, suddenly another flag gets flown over their head and it's no longer the gospel. Why? Because they get most upset over stuff that's not even related to the gospel. You can tell. The dog that gets hit is the one that's yelling the loudest. The gospel. Does it bother you? Are you compelled by the gospel? Then if you are, he's telling you, Jesus through the apostle is saying, I want you to walk worthy of this. Now the big question is, how? And he says it in one sentence, stand firm. In verse 27, he goes, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear what? That you are standing firm. In what way? In one spirit with one mind striving for what? Standing firm on what? Together for the faith of the gospel. There we go. The word standing in the original language is a word that didn't mean. There's two ways of viewing standing. There's, There's a standing that is telling your kids go stand and wait for mom while I go in the store. Or while I'm going to get this and they stand there. Then there's the standing that is go stand in that current, that river, and make sure it doesn't sweep you away. This is the word standing that means standing against a strong current. When I was young, I don't know how old, but I remember it was burned into my brain. My dad was a strong man. We were at Ocean Beach, San Francisco. We were standing there in the waves, and the waves, I'm a little guy, so the waves are maybe hitting up to my knee or whatever, and all of a sudden a big wave comes in, and it's coming up to my chest, and I'm going to get swept out into eternity. And lo and behold, my dad picks me up, and that wave came up to about his waist. It would have t- swept me away, and he just stood there like a rock as that current pulled out, but I didn't get pulled out. God is saying, church, you're going to get pulled away from the gospel. You're going to get pulled away from living in a life that's worthy of it. The biggest danger, the biggest detriment to the gospel of Jesus Christ today on this planet is not Islam, it's not politics, it's not the vaccine, it's none of that stuff. The biggest threat to Christian, the gospel today, is Christians not loving each other, not standing firm in the gospel, getting pulled away with the current that pulls them away from Christ. So Jesus knows what he's talking about. This is his church. So he says to his church, listen, I want you to stand firm. This implies there's a strong current trying to pull you away from me. Pull you away from reflecting me, walking worthy of the gospel. Stand against it. You're going to feel it. You'll feel it internally. So this means that there are today strong forces against you internally and externally to pull you away from the gospel. It tells us that the purpose of our, word, of our walk on the earth is the gospel. That's what we're to stand in. Amen. And it tells us that the gospel itself is the politics of the Christian. Now how to stand is the ultimate question. How does Jesus, if he were here today and you feel yourself being pulled away emotionally from him, what would he tell you in a counseling session? Well, he's going to tell us, here's how you can stand firm against the pull of currents. Number one, stand against, this particular current will pull you away, stand against the current of cultural adversity. Have you felt it the last few months? Anybody felt it? 
it's palatable now, isn't it? Christians are presented as evil. Christianity is presented as hate speech. People are now being afraid to even mention they're a Christian lest they be made fun of. A totally shift in the last couple years. What's been there comes out in the open. Do you feel it? They felt it. They were being persecuted. Maligned. And so he says in verse 27, 28, 29 rather, here's how you should... Here's how the standing firm looks. He goes first of all in 28 to 30. You're not going to be alarmed by your opponents. Stop being afraid of people. Which is a sign of destruction for them. But of salvation for you and that of God. In other words, the evidence that you are really saved. Is the fact that you're not alarmed. When not, the entire world is against you. It's not alarming you. That's right. Amen. So... He says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. So the first current that can pull Christians away from this striving together for the gospel is fear. Alarm. So he says, stop it. Don't allow yourself to be alarmed. But Lord, you don't realize how powerful this government is. We're in Philippi, which is a colony of the Roman Empire, which all the retired generals and all the retired leaders go to. It's like a, it's like a little Rome. And they're, they're so biased against us as Christians. They're passing local laws that are affecting us. Stop, stop being alarmed. Christians, I had a man in my church. He was in our worship team. All of a sudden I go, I haven't seen him. Where did that guy go? He leave the planet? Year and a half I hadn't seen him. I called him. I go, brother, what's up? How you doing? Uh, me and my wife were home. I said, well, why are you home? He goes, we're just afraid. I said, did you get vaccinated? Yeah. Did you wear your mask? Yeah. But we're just afraid. So I said, you got a bigger problem than COVID. Your, your problem isn't COVID. Your problem is fear. You haven't learned how to overcome fear. Because if it's not COVID, it'll be something else. Lord willing, I'm going to Pakistan in two weeks. I'm preaching to guys who live in fear. If you get caught preaching the gospel there, no trial, they kill you on the spot. 12-year-old boy that lived in the area that I'm going to, about an hour away, he inadvertently grabbed a utensil to drink out of it. And when he drank out of it, he didn't realize it was some instrument that was used in the, in the mosque. And they killed him instantly. And you're worried about fear? He goes, stop it. Didn't I tell you on this earth you'd suffer persecution for me? What do you think? They're going to applaud you because you believe in me? Think they're going to, they're going to say, we want you? They don't want you. They'll falsely accuse you. They'll malign you. Read what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when they speak evil against you, when they speak, make up things about you, falsely accuse you. Blessed are you for so the apostles, the prophets were persecuted before you, but you stand. He says, you stand. Nobody takes a light and puts it under a bushel because people are going to see it. He goes, stand. Christians, stop being afraid of COVID. You don't need to be afraid of COVID. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus Christ, in 1 Corinthians 15, he conquered sin except COVID. Is he victorious over all of it? Well, what if I die? You go to heaven. What, are you going to live your entire life worried about dying? Do the precautions you need to do and then serve God. And love God. Be among his people. If you're at home watching this, you're unbiblical. 
I know you love Jesus. Jesus knows you love him. And the whole reason you're watching is because you love his word. But get your rear end down here. Okay? You have, the Bible says church is not you in front of a TV. The Bible says they meet together to exhort and encourage one another for the building up of the faith to serve one another. Satan's master plan through the COVID is to actually destroy the church because they become a bunch of individuals sitting at church watching church rather than being church and serving. So, I don't know how I got on that. Maybe it's because I've been dealing with it for a year and a half. My bunny trails get awful long now, so... Stand firm against cultural adversity. I mentioned that man and I told him you don't need to fear. He goes, we've been afraid to even get him out of our house. Are you kidding me? I said, I understand that. He goes, brother, that must have been hard. Yeah, it's hard. I said, so I sent him a bunch of verses. Just don't forget about COVID. Just on overcoming fear. He read the verses. Psalms 56. I will not fear. The Lord is with me. He will not forsake me. Your word I will trust. All the verses Jesus promised. Don't fear in this world. You will have persecution. You will have suffering. But don't worry. I've overcome the world. Though you're anxious, give all your cares and anxieties to me. I'll take care of you. The next Sunday he was at church for the first time in a year and a half. You know, praise God. I gave him a big hug. So, they were dealing with the current of cultural adversity, the fear factor. And so he tells them, listen, don't be afraid in verse 28. Don't be alarmed by your opponents. And then something else that will help them not to be alarmed. If we're, if we're looking at this on an outline basis, you would look at it this way. You've got to stand against the current pulling you. The first current is fear. Stand by just stopping being afraid. How do you stop being afraid? Verse 28 and 29. Recognize God's in control. It's been granted to you to suffer. Look what he says in verse 28. Don't be alarmed. Verse 29, for to you it has been granted. That means given. God's in control. You're, he has decided to bless you with suffering. For Christ's sake. What? Doesn't sound like Joel Osteen to me. That's not what Joel says. Joel's a false teacher. I know he looks good and smiles good. But he's a false teacher. Why? He teaches a different gospel. The Bible never preaches you wealth and health and prosperity. He says God's given you what? Suffering. In this world you will suffer. If they hated me, they will hate you. It's been granted to you to suffer. Well, why would you do that, Lord? So I can be glorified in your weakness. So I can sustain you in your weakness. Did you know in the tribulation period, there's no protection politically for Christians? Once the tribulation breaks out, God in his great mercy is going to save millions through the ministry of the 144,000, through the preaching of the gospel. Millions. So many that in Revelation 7 he goes, we can't even number them. Hundreds of millions that are saved through the tribulation and they come to heaven through death. Because the last thing that they, they experience on earth is the first thing that Jesus said he'll help them with. They come into his presence and he goes, you're not going to have any heat beat down on you anymore. Sun's not going to beat down on you. You're not going to thirst anymore. Nor are you going to run around with no, no covering. What does that imply? They left the earth with nothing. Jesus never promised you anything other than the infinite presence of himself. And it's through him ministering in you his joy and peace while you're suffering that he displays his greatest power. The Apostle Paul, well, listen, I'm like you. I hate suffering. 
2 Corinthians, Paul says, I hate this, Lord. He begged Jesus three times to take away this physical pain he was in. And the Lord said, Paul, in this case, I'm not going to do it. Why? My grace is sufficient. Now, Paul, Paul had to respond to that. You're sitting there going, okay, my grace is sufficient. What are you going to say to Jesus now? Paul then responds to that and says to the Lord, therefore, I will most gladly, what? Rejoice in tribulation, in insults. I will rejoice. Are you you a masochist? Bring on the pain. No. I now recognize the divine favor behind God allowing me to be in that pain. And that is to display himself in me. Is it okay for God to make you weak for a while? Does he have permission to let you suffer for a while? Is that okay? He's bringing you to heaven. He wants to bring other people to heaven. He wants you to taste of his incredible, infinite peace and joy. But you're kind of wandering away in this life. Because I'm just going to make you hurt so much that all you'll have is me. So that then you'll learn me. And so the Lord, this current of cultural adversity was tearing up the church. Walk worthy. How do you walk worthy? You're going to have to learn to deal with suffering and persecution and pain without fear, but in acknowledging God's sovereignty over it and good purposes in it. But there was another current that was pulling him away. He says in chapter 2, verses 1, this is a current, it stand against the current, not of just um, cultural adversity, but stand against the current of relational disunity. There's another current that pulls Christian away from walking worthy. Read it, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, it's it's actually a condition in the Greek that could read better like this. Therefore, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion. What's he talking about? He's saying, since the reality of Christ's affection, compassion, and fellowship with you is a settled deal, make my joy complete in verse 2 by actually paraphrasing, treating each other the same way. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. What mind? The mind of the consolation of love. The fellowship of the Spirit. The encouragement of Christ. Fellowship, encouragement, and love. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same what? Love that you are receiving in Christ. United in what? The same fellowship of the Spirit. Intent on what? The same purpose of the gospel. Christians who are ornery have forgotten how good God's been to them. They just flat out forget it. You've forgotten. He calls someone wicked who won't forgive, harbors resentment. You're wicked. Go, wow, John, can you write it another way? Okay, let's call it um, evil. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, There's a servant who was forgiven $30 million and would not forgive 20 bucks. In fact, not only would not forgive, he rehearsed it in his mind and became so angry. He couldn't contain himself. He was slandering the person, angry towards him, and actually physically couldn't control himself towards this other man because he had not paid him back what was owed him. And of course, he threatened him. He says, if you don't, this is going to happen to you. He threatened him, and it got back to the king who had forgiven this evil servant $30 million. You know what the king did, right? He says, you evil, wicked servant. I forgave you $30 million. How could you not forgive 20 bucks? Now you're going to pay back everything you owe me, which means you're eternally in jail. The evidence that you're a false Christian is not that you're angry and resentment at people, but you don't repent of it. 
he tells us all the time, stop being angry, stop. That's not, it's not a sin to feel that, right? But what do you do with that? Do you sit and nurture it? The longer you do that and justify it by saying they deserve it, the more unchristlike you are. And the longer you display an unchristlike, unforgiving, angry heart, the more you should look at yourself and go, I've got a problem. It's not them. This is revealing something drastically wrong with me in Christ. He calls what I'm doing wicked. So there's the issue of relational disunity in chapter um, uh, 2 that he says, make my joy complete by absorbing, basically recognizing God's love, encouragement, and fellowship for you, since this is true. And then you make my joy complete by displaying that to others. What will that mean? Well, verse 3, that will mean if you're going to stop against the current of relational disunity, that means the current that's pulling you that you're really going to have to fight against is the current of your own wicked heart. This isn't culture anymore. This isn't people anymore. This is your heart. Because he says maintaining the same love and he goes, then he gets to the core of all this, your attitude, your heart. Verse 3, he goes, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Where's their focus? Yes. What's their radar attuned to? Their own needs? They're they're focused on themselves. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Did you know that in God's kingdom, as he looks upon earth and sees danger spots in his church, the ground zero of danger spots for him, if you, if you zoom in from heaven on that, you look into the heart of his children in his churches that are filled with anger and filled with resentment and filled with self-interest. I didn't get my way, so I'm mad. He says, I want my way. I'm like that. I got a PhD in selfishness. Do you know that? You can look it up. I have a PhD in selfishness. And I earned it with no classwork. I'm just a master at being selfish. I'm a master at being completely indifferent to your needs. In fact, my radar is completely in tune to what? Me. I'm very, very aware when you offend me. Super aware. I can detect it from a mile away. They looked at me this way. They said, how dare they talk that, that tone of voice? They weren't thinking of me. It's amazing how skilled we are at perceiving offenses to us. But he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Well, I'm kind of wired that way, Lord. I'm always thinking about myself. I know, that's the problem. You're not thinking about the gospel. And your heart of selfishness and self-preoccupation is killing the gospel. It's not walking worthy. What should I do, Lord? He goes, repent, tell me you're sorry, and then start following Christ. Have this attitude in you which was in Christ. In verses 3 to 8, he describes the humility of Christ. Who, what? Being God. Look at what it says. Have this attitude in you. In verse 3, which was in Christ Jesus. Verse 5. Verse 4, don't look out for your own personal interest. That implies that's all they're thinking about is what they want. Have this attitude, verses 5, where there's an attitude. Just think, the Son of God, eternal, creator of the galaxies around us, he's giving us a, 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 a secret, privileged look into the very thinking of the Son of God while he was on earth. And he goes, what was it? And he goes, humility, verse 5. Humility, verse 3. 
have this attitude. What? This attitude of humility. That's what he's modeling in you, in yourselves, which is also in Christ. How was that evident? Although he existed in the form of God. That means he eternally was God. Did not regard equality with God something to be held on to. That doesn't mean he dropped being God when he came earth. It means he didn't regard equality of expression, not possession. In the context, he's talking about the form that he's taking, not the being that he is. So he's saying in verse 6, I don't regard it important any longer that I have the equal prestige and rights and privileges and praises that I deserve because I'm God. I'm going to let go all of my rights and privileges and prerogatives. I'm going to let them go. I'm not going to worry any longer whether they praise me or not. I'm going to come to the earth completely disregarding my own rights, my own interests, my own needs. He goes, I did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but God didn't do this. The Father didn't do this. The Son, the eternal creator of the universe, God himself, he decided to empty himself. So he emptied himself of all these prerogatives, not the possession of deity. He doesn't stop being God. He empties himself of the form of God, the outward expression of God, and takes the form of a bondservant. What kind of form? He made like a man. What kind of man? Verse 8, the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. C.S. Lewis, I'm, you may have heard this before, every time I read it, I, I can hardly get through it. C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles, wrote this about Christ, his condescension. It says, somebody has a picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great, huge weight. He must stoop in order to lift it. He must almost disappear under its load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swinging on his shoulders. Or, you can think of him as a diver. Reducing himself to nakedness. Flying through midair and then gone in a splash. Vanished. Heaven. Where'd, where'd the Son of God go? He's down there. He's, he's gone. He's in the womb of Mary. He leaps out of heaven. Right into the human race. Lewis says this. You can imagine as, as a diver. Gone with the splash. Vanished. Rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down, down, through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. And then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting. Suddenly he breaks through, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing. He went down to recover. And you're... You have a Savior. He would do that for you. Are you getting pulled away from the current of the gospel by your own hurt feelings, self-interest, combativeness, unforgiveness, self-centeredness? Please stop. You're not walking worthy of the gospel. The current of your own heart is the thing that's pulling you the strongest away from the gospel. And you don't even recognize it. You think it's just you. Just internalize it. It is affecting the gospel. It's to pleasing your Lord. To, to, to stand against this 
current of disunity. He wants you to, to repent of self-interest and prides. He wants you to start worshiping Christ and recognizing his great love and, and mercy to you. And then lastly, he wants you to do something relationally. He says in verse 12 to 16, he goes, So then, my beloved, he's still talking about standing firm against the currents. Just as you have always obeyed, now is in my presence only, now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, my child, listen. You're beginning to view your Christian life in isolation from me. You've lost reverence from me. Do you recognize that I'm sovereign over what's coming into your life? In fear and trembling, in reverence of him. Stand, he says, against the current of your own self-interest, against all these currents of fear. Stand by recognizing, verse 13, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's working in you. This isn't a light thing to God, how you respond to cultural fear, to relational disunity, to selfishness. This isn't a light thing to your Father in heaven. The gospel is at stake. So he says, please recognize my sovereignty. And then he ends by a very practical exhortation, summing up kind of what this would look like. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, unless they deserve it. The word grumbling is the Greek word that sounds like your grumble. The Greek word for grumble is a word that actually sounds just like your grumbling. It meant to speak in low tones, to whisper and to murmur, 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 just to say things. It meant to express to others in a very quiet, low-keyed way your complaints. Is what the Israelites did. They ramped it up when they got through, when they got into the desert. Go, you've led us into the desert. After all this, we should have died and we should have stayed in Egypt. And God heard all their complaints. They complained because they didn't get enough meat. They complained because they didn't have enough water. They complained because Moses wasn't leading them quick enough. They were, they were just complaining and murmuring the whole time. That is what attacks the gospel in heaven that's what your father in heaven is most concerned about in our Christian life I am in a world where I'm constantly going to be mistreated how about you you're in a world where you're constantly not going to have your needs met that's okay you have Christ who's your savior that there's a reason why the Bible says if somebody has something against somebody where do you go go to the church and tell everybody doesn't say that where do you go if you got a problem with somebody? The gospel's at stake. You better know the answer. He says, no murmuring and complaining. What's that mean? He goes, you don't spread your discontent and your complaining to other people. You go directly and only to the people that are at issue. Why? Because if you don't, you're not walking worthy of the gospel. You're planting seeds in other people where you go on and go, okay, well, I'm over it. But they're not. Now you've got a trail of other people now that are infected. That's more than COVID. Murmuring is more potent than COVID has ever been. It spreads quicker. It does more damage. It instantly penetrates the heart. No mask can protect you from it. It goes right to you. Proverbs says there's like dainty morsels. Why does murmuring so dangerous? Because people love to hear it. The whisperings of a murmur are like dainty morsels, Proverbs said. They're like seized candy. They hear it and they go... I mean, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear, but I know, 
Somebody's teaching on the book of Romans. You ever heard that before? Hey, did you hear such and such that's going on? Oh, what? Tell me again. What? What happened? Oh, really? It's like dainty morsels. Give me more. The human heart loves the dainty morsels of murmuring. And you know, your Father in heaven, He knows all of us are inclined to that. I am. I'm a murmur and a complainer. <laughs> but the Lord beats me up and says, don't do that anymore. And I stop. And I ask him to forgive me. So let's, let's, let's finish by saying this. Valley Bible Church has been, by God's providence, allowed to exist for no reason outside of himself. It began, it grew, and it actually exists only by his permission and by his will. Uh, if you think it's Phil, you're wrong. When you get to heaven, Jesus is going to show you you're completely wrong. You go, oh yeah, you, you, let me show you what, what Phil could accomplish apart from me. Just flatten balloon, nothing. Where'd it go? Nothing. So this isn't about anybody. This is about the gospel. This church started and has continued by the grace of God doing one thing. Ultimately, Jesus is pleased. He doesn't care about the difference of views of worship, the difference of views of different issues. That is irrelevant to God. He cares about the gospel. Are they continuing to preach the full gospel of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the need for repentance, all of that? Are they continuing to do that? Are you being taught that? By the way, I don't mean tacking it on to the end of a sermon. That's not expository preaching. That's not preaching the gospel. Telling stories for 45 minutes and then at the end saying Jesus loves you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is what Paul did in Romans. Let me explain to you the gospel. For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven from all unrighteousness. He explains sin. He explains Christ dying. He explains justification by faith alone. He explains all of that because God doesn't want you to be ignorant of why Jesus died. Not just that he died. And if churches don't preach clear, expository messages that explain the text of Scripture and explain the gospel, they leave churches ultimately filled with weak people. Joel Osteen has 19,000 in each service. Doesn't mean a thing to God. So, this church has been blessed. 50 years preaching the gospel. To God be the glory. God be the glory. Larry said a red light would come on when they're going to make me stop. I haven't seen any red light, Larry, but I'm, I'm assuming it's close. I feel it. I can feel it. You and I only have a little while left on this earth. Let's do it right. Do you have a heart that's pulled by the current of fear? Are you a fear-driven Christian? Please stop. That's an insult to your Savior. He goes, really? You don't think I can take care of you? Obedience in the spite of fear. There's always risk to obeying God. Amen. Obey God. Worst that can happen is you go to heaven. Okay? Obey, obey God. Secondly, the current of relations. It's interesting, he has more verses on dealing with the current of your own relational issues than he does the current of fear. Because from God's perspective, that usually eats up Christians more. I have more people have left Grace Church over relational problems with people than any doctrine. By far. 
It's always people issues that get to, get to us, right? People issues. You get hurt feelings. You get, please learn to deal with that. Please learn to remember. If Since you have compassion, since you have fellowship with the Spirit, since you have this, the, all this um, encouragement in Christ, since you have that, stop doing this. And start rejoicing in what the Lord's done and start praying for those that, that have hurt your feelings and enjoying them. If Valley is going to exist... If Valley is going to exist for another 50 years or until the Lord comes preaching the gospel, it'll do to the extent that his people in his church come together for the sake of the gospel and make everything else peripheral and allow their hearts to be molded by the love of their Savior. Father, I thank you for your people. Thank you for this text that reminds us of how zealous you are for your glory and for the gospel. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we really don't have anything to fear in this world. You even told us in Matthew 10, don't fear those who can kill the body, but have no power over your soul. I tell you who to fear. Fear God who has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear Him. Do not fear. He knows every hair of your head is numbered. Lord, I pray for that, and I pray that you would help us all. We're in bodies. We still have this sinful remnant in us. We're so inclined, Lord, to begin to be relationally disunified with your people. So help us to remember the consolation of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, the perfect love that you have for us. Thank you, Lord. I give you the praise for the 50 years that you've established the gospel here. Jesus, you are the one that gets 100% of the glory. No one in heaven will be talking about anybody but you. So, Lord, thank you. May this church not rest on its laurels. May they not coast. May they move forward preaching the gospel, expository messages that exalt you. Lord, thank you for your word. In Jesus, your name, amen. This whole last month, we've been singing about God's faithfulness, and uh, I wanted to sing a couple more songs here before we dismiss about it, but uh, let's stand together. We're going to sing a song called Promises. i
Thank you, Father. It's not by might nor by strength, but by my grace and my hand, you said you will complete your work. Who has despised the day of small things, weak things? You always work through weakness. So, Lord, keep Valley Bible weak. No matter how many people are here, it doesn't matter. They're still weak, powerless apart from you. May each member begin to praise you for your grace and mercy in their life. I pray as the weeks and months and years move forward, they continue to preach Christ, they continue to make disciples, continue to declare the gospel, explain it to people, they continue to stand with your words and tell people what you've said, not afraid of the culture's view, the cultural adversarial reaction, but Lord, help, great, uh, help Valley to not fear man, Help them, Lord, to continue to love you, to exalt you. Draw them close to you in their lives, in their homes, in their, at their work. Strengthen your people here. We're in dark days. You said in Philippians that instead of murmuring and complaining, we should be holding forth the word of life. Holding it for, like, like a light that shines in the midst of a dark, perverse generation. Lord, oh, how valley is a light. There's truth. There's gospel. There's Christ. So may your people continue to, to do that. Not worry about the future. Not worry about fear. But to love you with their whole heart. We thank you for that, Lord. May they continue to trust you in all their ways. Lord, you've never used a church that rests on what happened in the past. You always use churches that are trusting you and for the future. So please continue to do that, Lord. You're looking for a weak church, and that's what we are. We're just weak people. So Lord, continue to use them. May the gospel spread from here and through your people, through small groups, through people at work. May the gospel herald out from this building until you return. And Jesus will thank you for it in your name. Amen.
Amen. Right before I dismiss you, I want to thank all the children in this room who sat very patiently and quietly during our service. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all for being here. Uh, Have a great day. And thank you for celebrating 50 years with us here in the building and those of you at home. Thank you very much.